Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai. Welcome to Q&A. I'm Jack Tame. This morning, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Three and a half months since she made the decision to close our borders. We ask how long they can remain shut. We have to make sure that we don't lose our position because the United States is operating with restrictions. We don't want to be in that place. No one is suggesting that you open the borders today. No. I, I, what I'm asking for is a time frame, though. We'll get the latest on when scientists expect we'll have a COVID-19 vaccine and the ABC's chief White House correspondent on his close-up view of the Trump presidency. See, there's a typical fake news deal. You asked now, me when look, she was appointed. Look, I told you when she was appointed. You're a third-rate reporter, and what you just said is a disgrace, OK? It is 107 days since New Zealand closed its border in response to COVID-19. But although our response has been widely credited with eliminating the virus, the process of reopening our borders is in many ways much more complicated than the process of closing them down. This week, parts of Europe have begun reopening to travellers. But what's the plan for New Zealand? What's the reopening strategy? I spoke with Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern a short time ago, and I began by asking if New Zealand is waiting on a vaccine before it lifts all of its border restrictions. No, not, not necessarily, but uh, what will overlay all of our judgment and all of our work uh, will be making sure that we don't put at risk the freedoms that New Zealand currently has. I mean, when you look around the world, you can see that many, many other countries are coexisting with COVID and that is placing restrictions and coming at an economic cost. We are already, as you know, doing work on a trans-Tasman bubble. We've set up the framework for uh, what it needs to look like, both on our side and on Australia's side, for that opening to occur. Um, and that'll act as a framework for other nations for our future decision-making. And, Jack, a couple of other developments that will make a difference, not just vaccine, but whether or not we see uh, an effective treatment for COVID, whether or not we see fast and reliable testing emerge, which could play a role um, as an exit point uh, at, um, at borders, uh, and, of course, whether or not we see a change in pattern uh, with the way that COVID is spreading. Because at the moment, we closed our borders when there were 240,000 cases roughly, there are now 10 million. What's the time frame for those, um, those new um, decisions to be made, though? If, if we are waiting on decisions to be made for, for testing or indeed for a vaccine, what happens if those things don't come about? Yeah, well, obviously, at the moment, there's, there are rapid developments happening every day. I mean, we see that trials are underway for even forms of saliva testing. Mm. There is quick turnaround of one-hour testing now, but unfortunately, their reliability isn't what it needs to be. So some of this is um, already out there, um, underway and being utilised. We just need it um, to be more effective than it currently is. Um, otherwise, though, when we look at some of the other work that we've been doing, like, for instance, the trans-Tasman bubble... There, it's not just uh, about us. You know, obviously, uh, we're working to get our house in order, mm. making sure that at airports we're separating passengers. Airlines know they'll need to keep transit passengers separate from passengers coming in from Australia. All of that work's underway. But at the moment, of course, Australia um, wants to move as a country rather than state by state. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, issues in Victoria are delaying that. But, but I mean, so like Australia, you know, has, has maybe 100 new cases a day at the moment, but you look at the likes of the United States that has tens of thousands of new cases every day, under your current bubble criteria, the US doesn't have a chance of reopening travel with New Zealand anytime soon. So I really want to know what is the time frame for some of those other countries if indeed a vaccine doesn't come into fruition? And again, I make the same point that I made earlier, Jack. We shut our borders, and New Zealand has supported us shutting our borders when there were roughly 240,000 cases, and now there are 10 million. So you're asking me at the height of a pandemic, which actually in some parts of the world hasn't yet completed surging around border reopenings, and what I'm saying is that there are countries where we are seeing a similar strategy to New Zealand, yeah. where the potential is there, but we have to make sure that we don't lose our position, because the United States of is course. operating with restrictions. We don't want to be in that place. No, 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 no one is suggesting that you open the borders today. No. I, 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 what I'm asking for is a time frame, though. Yes, I mean, it's three, what, it's three and a half I'm, months since you closed the borders, so at I'm, what point do you say, 
this is no longer sustainable because the vaccine is not a guaranteed promise. And again, all I'm saying is that you're asking me to answer a question around a pandemic that has not finished peaking yet. And the other, the flip side of also what you're suggesting is simply if it takes too long, we should open the borders and choose to change our strategy. I don't accept that. You know, countries that have done that have paid the price in so other ways. So what if we don't get a may, vaccine? If I could just finish, they may have open borders, but they do not have a fully functioning economy. Mm. So there is a trade-off to be made there. So again, I, again, I come back though. You've pointed to the vaccine. Vaccine is not the only thing that will make a difference. Um, we have, um, for instance, some time ago, I spoke with Prime Minister Lee of Singapore uh, around what we do at our borders. We, of course, in New Zealand are already known for having very smart borders when it comes to biosecurity. We need to start thinking about what that could look like from a health perspective. Now, there are a few more tools that we would need at the moment. We know some of the checks at borders mm. aren't sufficient, so there are new developments we would need, but it would not necessarily just be limited to vaccine, but there is more work required. You talked about the trans-Tasman bubble. What about a bubble with the likes of Vietnam and Taiwan that are far more progressed when it comes to controlling COVID-19? Yeah, and um, likewise, obviously, South Korea have a, have a bit of a um, blip at the moment, but equally have been very successful. Um, and what we've done is, as a Cabinet, set up a framework for that decision-making that isn't just specific to Australia, with very much the view mm. in mind that there will be other countries um, that, um, that will be able to fulfil that criteria. And the things we're looking for are, you know, not having community transmission, the ability for them to contact trace, um, how effective um, their, their testing regime is. Right, so, so why, we have why, a not, good why, not, why not the likes of Taiwan now then? Again, we have focused our efforts um, first and foremost on that trans-Tasman work. It gives us a model and a testing ground to make sure we can do it properly and we can get it right. But the Australians aren't getting it right. How long oh. do we wait before we look at other countries? And, and for the, ultimately, Steel Jackets, their decision whether or not they choose to go state by state or in, as, yeah. as Australia in its totality. Um, at the moment, obviously, the view seems to me they want to move as a whole, uh, but ultimately that's their call. Um, and so, so how long will you wait for the Australians before you look at other countries if Australia oh, indeed look, can't well, get on top of those cases? Obviously, we're already having conversations with the Pacific because we have realm countries in mm. there that we do need to prioritise. So those are conversations we're already having. We want to make sure, though, that when we re-enter travel there, that we do it safely no-one wants to be responsible mm. um, for seeing COVID in what is currently a, a COVID-free area. And what's the time frame on travel with the Pacific? As, as I say, it is as much about them as mm. it is about us. Some okay. Pacific nations don't want to move yet. They've still got quarantine at their borders. Um, but um, we are working still, as I say, on just getting the logistics around air transfers and so on right at the moment, Jack. Patient information with, uh, about people with COVID-19 has been leaked. How did that happen? I, and we are still working through that. It may well be not ruling out that it may have been someone acting criminally. Um, we're looking to investigate as we speak. That's something that uh, must Minister be able to work Hipkins. it out pretty quickly. Like, is, is someone shared a spreadsheet? Yeah, and uh, again, you know, sometimes that, of course, requires us to be able to forensically take a look at, at what's happened. So uh, we, I was informed on Friday. Um, obviously, that's something that officials are working through. Mm. Um, but we haven't ruled out that it may have been someone acting criminally. Was the information protected? Well, of course, it's people's private information. Um, when you say protected, uh, obviously some of that information um, in terms of making sure that we're safely transferring individuals, because just for context, someone who tests positive mm. for, for COVID will move from one facility to another, and we need to make sure that we facilitate those transfers. Um, that information, of course, is, is their private information, which is why I'm talking about that it may well have been criminal. We still need so, to so investigate. So was it protected? So, for example, was this information password protected? Oh, and, and I cannot um, tell you the nature, the form in which that information was shared. I can tell you it should never have been. But I'll let okay. the officials do their job and work through what's happened there. We're staring down government net debt of $170 billion. How are you going to pay it down? And one thing, of course, going in that we've said consistently, the reason that we got ourselves onto a position where we could use our balance sheet uh, was because New Zealand is a place that has unexpected things happen. This is the rainy day. So coming in, and I do think this is helpful for context, coming in we had roughly 20% um, um, debt relative to GDP. When you think about other countries that were coming into COVID mm. with sometimes 80% or more... So we're going to we 50%. Well, how, we do you, well how do you pay it down? 
We are. Well, of course, again, Jack, it is about making sure that we keep driving towards the economy that will make sure that we're in a better position this to is, pay it down. So a high... I mean, either you have to increase you have to increase revenue or you have to cut spending. It's one well, of those two. So what well, will it be? Well, we've always been prudent with our spending, Jack, and that fiscal responsibility, we demonstrated that... I'll have to say again, got our debt down. In two years, we have reduced the debt that we came into. So we have demonstrated how you can do that without the kind of austerity this measures is more you're done, showing. more than two times the debt, though, that, will, we're, that we're talking about here. And it, will, and it will take time. But there is the ability, with the right investment, to be able to grow your way out as well. And that is why we have focused on spending that's not just providing a buffer for people's incomes, but also act as stimulus stimulate the economy in, and grow the economy. In, in principle, do you support broadening the tax base? In principle. I support a fair uh, tax system, and we have been taking measures to make sure that we have greater fairness in our system. People forget, Jack, that when we came in, uh, there were tax uh, cuts that were uh, legislated, okay. which we cancelled in order to use tax so transfers to create greater you fairness in our fair, system. A, a fair tax system. I do. Is it fair that you, on a salary of more than $400,000 a year, pay the same John Key-era top tax rate as someone earning $72,000 a year? Well, it's not entirely correct because, of course, the last national government legislated for tax cuts, which we cancelled, because I didn't is believe... It, is it fair that I you pay the same rate? That I didn't believe I should get that tax cut. So, Jack, we cancelled that. I know, I'm not asking about the tax cut. I'm I asking could, about if it's... If I'm I asking just, if that's fair. Yeah, but you, can you just answer that just, question? I'm going to... I'm just... If I may finish, because it's not just about our tax rates, it's also about our transfer system. So what we have also done is used our tax transfer system to increase what families on those lower income areas receive. Now, just to finish, you're asking, though, about Labor's tax policy going forward. No, now, as I'm much asking as a... about your principles. I'm not asking about policy. I'm asking about your principles. You just told me that you believe in a fair tax system. I'm asking you if someone earning more than $400,000 a year should pay the same top tax rate as someone earning $72,000 a year. It's a I've question said... of principle, not of policy. Uh, well, of course, Jack, there is a link, obviously, between the two, and I have already given you my view that absolutely we need a fair attack system. There is more that could be done there. We haven't completed our work, for instance, on the tax around digital services and multinationals. If you are asking solely about income tax, to be honest, Jack, that is only one small part of our tax system, where I do believe more it's work is required. Part. However, I'm not going to announce our tax policy today as much as I know you'd love an exclusive for Q&A. We will stay with Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern after the break, talking coalition politics, Winston Peters and Labour's election campaign. Do you accept that delivery is your weak point? No. No, I do not. Kia ora te Welcome back. We have the second part now of my interview with Jacinda Ardern. I asked the Prime Minister what's planned for the Labour Party Congress today. Well, today, uh, as much as we are going into an election period, our focus has to remain on our COVID recovery and rebuild. And so I'll be setting out our plan, our economic plan specifically, as part of that rebuild. Chris Hipkins is now in charge of two of your three highest spending ministries. He alone has oversight for more than $37 billion of allocated spending in the last budget. You're running out of talent, aren't that you? No, absolutely not. Jack, I was not this close to an election and when we're in the mo uh, middle of an ongoing COVID recovery, uh, have a widespread reshuffle. Now is not the time. Minister Hipkins has an operational um, ministry already. He's good experience in that regard. He's also our Minister for State Services, so knows exactly what levers we need to use for an all-of-government response on COVID. But he's already handling one of your biggest ministries. Why not someone else? Oh, because every single minister, if you pan around that cabinet table, every single minister there has either a significant um, change programme on their plate or significant collections of portfolios. This is a decision I've made in the lead-up to the election, which I will revisit after. 
If you consider some of the biggest promises from the last election campaign, the likes of Kiwi Build, child poverty reduction, rail to Auckland Airport, do you accept that delivery is your weak point? No, no, I do not. Look, let me run through each of those. Look, when it comes to our building programme, you know, governments will try things that have never been tried before, and we may not always get it right. Uh, and in Kiwi Build, we've been very honest about that fact. That has not stopped us from still having the largest government building program that we've seen in decades. Uh, we've just added an extra 8,000 state houses that we'll be building as part of our rebuild, and we've been on track with that program, our building program to date there. On light rail to the airport, it's MMP. Sometimes parties are just not going to support the program that you have, and that's the democratic system we have. On child poverty, I'll challenge you on that. The seven out of nine indicators, we have made progress. We have lifted tens of thousands of children Prime out Minister, of poverty, the top, and we are not finished. The top line from Statistics New Zealand in releasing their child poverty statistics is that there has been no material hardship change under uh, your watch, with, uh, you, with Jack, you being the Minister for Child Poverty Reduction. I'm going to stop you there. Material hardship is one measure of poverty. A significant it measures, measure. It measures. Let me, let me finish. Material hardship is a significant measure. It measures, though, a survey of whether or not our children are getting enough fresh food on the table three times a day, whether or not they have multiple pairs of shoes, whether they share a room. Yes, it's a significant measure. It's also one of those measures that takes more than mm. two years to filter down into change. If I, if I may, mm. the other measures of the nine we use are income-related, how much money is going into households. And as I say, seven of the nine, we have made improvements. I am not finished on child poverty, but one of the big frustrations is everything we do now has not even had its impact mm. yet before the measurements come through. So half of what you're seeing is actually the last government's initiatives rather than ours. The problem is that going into this election, people, people want more than just a plan, don't they? People want a government that they know has the capacity to deliver on a plan. And when they compare some of those explicit promises from the last election, some of those big policies, there will be many New Zealanders who say, yes, this government said the right things heading into the last election, but they haven't been able to deliver what they explicitly promised. And I've just demonstrated to you those, those three areas are one of actually over 100 pieces of legislation we have passed as a government. Significant changes around climate change, fresh water reform, significant building program. We have not finished, but the momentum we've created is huge. And what I'll be asking asking Kiwis, particularly in this period of rebuild and recovery, is let's not lose that momentum. Now is not the time for mm. change. Now is the time to keep going. This week in the New Zealand Herald, Winston Peters called his party a handbrake on bad ideas. You referenced MMP before. What does that comment say about your political relationship? Oh, our political relationship has been strong. We wouldn't have been able to do all the things we've done. So why would done. he say he's a handbrake on bad ideas? Those are your bad ideas he's talking about. <laughs> Look, and in fact, he said that that is not new. He's made that comment many, many times. Um, we are still a government of three different political parties who have different political ideas, Jack. If we all had completely the same view of the world, we wouldn't have different parties. But what does that say about your relationship? If if you're going in, if you're going into this election promising a, a bold economic plan to dig us out of this crisis, what should New Zealanders think about your relationship if your coalition partner says that some of your biggest ideas are bad ideas? New Zealanders know it's election year, and they know in election year they get a bit of electioneering. But we have been three parties who have managed through some very, very difficult times to continue to deliver for New Zealanders. I will be campaigning, though, not on behalf of any other party, but on behalf of Labour. And I will be mm. seeking a strong mandate so that we can keep going, so that we can keep on with our economic recovery plan in the wake of COVID. Do you have an agreement with Winston Peters, written verbal or otherwise, whereby he is responsible for disciplining New Zealand First members of Cabinet? Oh, it, it, it's, a, it's a given, of course, Jack. I am uh, responsible for the Cabinet manual, for making sure that ministers are fulfilling those expectations. But when it comes to individual disciplinary matters of other parties, then party leaders play but, a role but, there, But if obviously. they are New Zealand First members of Cabinet, 
Are you responsible for disciplining them, or and is that, Winston Peters responsible just, for disciplining them? And as I've just said, it very much depends on whether or not it's something that would be considered a breach of the Cabinet manual. If it's, for instance, someone's comments, um, whether or not I agree with them or not, um, and often that will be outside of their ministerial role, then you would consider that more to be a matter of, of party discipline. We understand New Zealand First is staunchly opposing the Ihu Matau deal, but otherwise... Um, um, it is effectively agreed upon. Do you see that deal being inked and finalised before the election? You'll know that I've wanted to find resolution for some time. Um, I've always said, though, that when we have announcements to make on it, we'll be doing that. In the meantime, I still hold that ambition. I do want to see resolution there. Is it going to happen before the election? Well, I hope so. But again, I'll keep working on it. Can you get enough votes to go alone? Uh, I, I never take anything for granted. You know, and I, I think it would be wrong for any party in an MMP environment to do that. So um, I'll be striking the strongest mandate I mm. can to keep up the momentum we already have. And can you be transformational in the way that you aspire to be if New Zealand First is your coalition partner in a second term? I still believe that we have made the kind of change for New Zealand and New Zealanders that will make a difference for generations to come. Let us know if you agree with Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on Facebook or email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. The panel is here after the break. Fran O'Sullivan and Ephesor Collins. And will we get a COVID-19 vaccine? There is still no guarantee, despite the billions of dollars being invested. An update from one of our top experts. I feel that now is the right time because COVID is going to continue to come in to our borders, to hit our borders. Uh, it's, you know, the pandemic is raging um, and uh, it's so important that we get that response right. I don't want to be a distraction to that response. That is David Clark throwing in the towel after weeks of pressure over his performance as Minister of Health. Fran O'Sullivan, NZME's Head of Business and Auckland Councillor Efeso Collins are our panellists this morning. Kia ora kōrua. Kia ora. Fran, I'll begin with you. Was it the right call to get rid of David Clark? Oh, absolutely. And um, it, she couldn't leave it at hanging uh, any longer. Focus groups and what she would have been getting uh, through other MPs would have shown he was a liability. And not necessarily only from the management of the actual COVID response, but more particularly from... Labour going into the election. This was class A inoculation of a political problem. Should she have done it earlier, Professor? Yeah, I, th I think she should have done it earlier. Uh, I said that on this programme too. But I think he was dead man walking. And we know that she's uh, been stating for some time that she was going to revisit it. And she has. And um, she, he's, she's accepted his resignation and he's gone. It's interesting to note the process, isn't it? We had David Clark on the show a couple of weeks ago. And I asked him, do you think you've done a good job as health minister? He said, yes. I said, do you think you should be health minister after the election? He emphatically said, yes. But in forcing him out, Jacinda Ardern still gives him the space to kind of paint it as though it's his own decision. There is a kindliness or perceived kindliness in that rank. Oh, maybe, but underneath an absolutely ruthless streak because mm. she pushed the button on it. Um, and really, I think going back to when Megan Clark, who... You know, you can see the difference uh, she makes um, already Megan because Woods. she's Megan Woods. Yeah. Sorry, she does the um, detail at the border. Mm. She, you know, she's uh, been out and looked at uh, some of these isolation facilities. So by bringing in someone who was strong, who was capable, in many respects, that that move already put the skids under David Clark. Ifisa, what does it say about Labor's talent in cabinet that Chris Hipkins is now in charge of two of the three biggest ministries by spending allocation? I think they go into this process looking at Chris. Hipkins as being the person who just manage it for the time being. Mm. But I think what, what they need to put aside is the rhetoric or the, the words of uh, Todd Muller who came out and said there's 17 empty seats there. And so they've got to deal with that because people will be talking about that. She's already outlined she's got a talented team. Look, my personal opinion was why not bring someone up who was an, uh, an acting health, um, mm. the associate health minister. So that could have been a way to go. But they've chosen let's just manage it for now. And I think there'll be a definite reshuffle within the first 100 days of the new parliament Fran, if they're re-elected. Yeah, Fran, yeah. you wouldn't expect to see Chris Hipkins staying in the health role after the election or staying in both the health and the education? No, I wouldn't, uh, unless you wanted to take on health and make the swap. And sometimes you do see that in, if, you get, if Labor gets another term, uh, predecessor governments, people who have proven mm. capable in a very big portfolio often go on to the next one. So I, it wouldn't surprise me if he actually moved to health and left education. I want to talk to you guys about the plan 
from here moving forward? Because it's three and a half months now since we closed the borders. We have seen some tepid reopenings in Europe this week that, that are starting to take in international travellers, including uh, travellers from New Zealand. Fran, what do you think of the government's plans from this point forward when it comes to border restrictions? Well, at the moment, it, um, we don't really know what those plans particularly are. What we are hearing are a certain degree of ifs and buts, but the paper this week from Peter Gluckman and um, Peter Gluckman, Rob Fife and also Helen Clark really looked at kind of what are the issues that government mm -hmm. should take into account and kind of charting a pathway. People want to know what that pathway might be. And even if the Prime Minister laid out the government's pathway, which may not be completely analogous mm. um, with, with the experts, but, but put a kind of a date. That gives business, and it might be educational institutions and others, something to work to. Now, if there was slippage in it, well and good, but it takes a while to gear up. So I think they do need to need to give something. Yeah, what do you think, Faisal? Yeah, sure. the timetable questions that you put to her a number of times weren't mm. quite there, but I think they're looking for the... She talked about the framework mm. and having a framework mm. in place. So you've had health experts. I guess the bottom line of this is if we are to see coronavirus come back in and we're, we're seeing an increase, the kind of increases we had earlier on, is how many deaths are we prepared to go for? Are we investing enough in the health system so that we're prepared? Do we have enough ICU beds so that we're prepared should something happen? But I think people want to see a bit of a plan and it's, they're eager for it. Well it's a different it's a difficult calculus isn't it yeah. and I don't think there are many reasonable people who are suggesting we throw open the borders to anyone who wants to come here and go back to pre-COVID border restrictions you know anytime soon. That being said we have to ask questions about about the progress of this vaccine and what happens if we don't have a vaccine. In a year's time, if we don't have a vaccine available in New Zealand and we are requiring everyone from the United States to do two weeks of government-mandated quarantine, that could have serious impact on our economy. Yes, it could, and, and this is the issue. I think there are things that could be happening now. I see no reason why, in, in a stepped process, you couldn't have um, students coming back for instance, out of China or elsewhere, in um, charter flights where they actually go into um, educational facilities and are locked down there for that time and testing. Um, the facilities have put, you know, Auckland and others have put mm. this in front of government, including an Auckland Council, um, saying, I mean, if you, Auckland is a huge number of students um, mm. who keep the central city economy going. And so we're starting to feel the loss of that. And if we're not careful, we might feel the loss of those students to other nations who will mm. do a sort of safe program for getting them back, you know, where they are um, quarantined either which way. Um, and I think that is a big issue, but we're sort of, you know, doing what we can to assist the America's Cup. And you've got the America's Cup, Grant Dalton, um, you know, pretty much um, a giant FU uh, to anyone who might want to ask questions about public money. Well, that's one part of the economy and it's a one-off. Uh, what about the sustaining services? Mm. Uh, I think this is important. And also Cook Islands, for heaven's sake, 70% tourism, their economy, mm. and an island nation as we are, mm. if they are safe and we are, why can't we island hot? Well, this is the other thing too, isn't it? When, mm. when it comes to the bubble, I, I thought it was interesting mm. to, to hear the Prime Minister say this morning is that they have openly been focused on Australia as the priority for some mm. sort of reciprocal bubble travel arrangement. Australia's not looking good at the moment, and if we can't take independent states mm. or travellers from independent states, then surely now is the time to be looking at the likes of Taiwan, Vietnam, Korea perhaps. Yeah, and you asked about Taiwan, and they've done really well under this yeah. uh, system as well. So I, I can't understand why we continue to focus just on Australia, and we should be looking mm. at the Pacific. She said there are round countries and those discussions are open. Mm. But how open are our conversations with Taiwan? They're going to be bringing in mm. students for us all the time. So I think those are the discussions that need to happen, a bit more far pace than what we're doing with Australia. Is Nationals messaging around the border clear, Fran? No, well, no, it keeps, seems, seems to be um, seesawing all over the place. Mm. I don't, don't find there's any clarity. Um, one hand, we are porous and it's dangerful, and then at the same time, we should be opening up, um, mm. you know, with Australia in particular. But I, I think each side needs to be emphasising this you know, pathway, how do we get the pathway? And I'd like to see an area of mutual agreement, really, where we take mm. the politics off the table, because in some respects, it actually does um, create fear factor within people, uh, where we have seen, you know, a small surge of cases at the border. People are concerned, and, you know, they don't want to expose themselves to the potential mm. of infection. So, you know, it's sort of kind of an area where 
please guys, don't play too hard on this. Mm. Um, start to be a bit adult mm. around it. Yeah, yeah. Good, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Afisal, what do you make of the coalition uh, relationship at the moment? You know, again, Winston Peters this week saying he's a handbrake or his party is a handbrake on, quote, bad ideas. Mm. Um, how, how much should we read into that this far from the election? I think he's trying really hard to make them uh, significant again. He's struggling in the polls. We, you know, you never count him out. It would be unwise to do that. But he needs to be able to distinguish himself from the Labour uh, the, and the Greens coalition group that he's part of. So I think he is a hand, but you know, you look at light rail, I was disappointed that light rail got uh, dropped for, for a time. But that's just what they've got. And I guess, you know, she said that she's going in for a strong mandate. I guess perhaps they're hoping that they do hold at 50% and that they don't need him. I'm sure they hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's that's yeah. the grouping. But you know, and you you ask the question about you know what's fairer tax and all of that. It's progressive tax for her, mm. but they can't just lean on the Greens to get that kind of tax system. They are going to be able have to be able to work this arrangement out. Mm. But he has been a handbrake, and mm. I don't know that's necessarily bad ideas. It's just that he's trying to distinguish himself from the rest mm. of the pack. What do you think, Rain? Oh, I think it's constitutionally quite an outrage. We go into an election and we vote for parties and say you're a Labour voter. I mean, I remember the Prime Minister sitting down at, or standing down at Wynyard and announcing light rail. And this is something the city's been after for some time. Mm. Auckland Transport put up some very good um, proposals. We also had capital gains tax mm. and others. But the big lesson that's been delivered by New Zealand First is when you get into that coalition-making deal room, uh, it's their deal that gets signed off, yeah. not your deal. And if you're the big partner, unless you actually have uh, support ticked off for capital gains taxes, for things like light rail, various moves on um, you know, uh, employment issues, unless you have their signature, forget it. Mm. It doesn't matter. And now that's not right to me when um, you know they got five times the votes that mm. um, New Zealand First got. Here's a solution. Two weeks before the election, the Prime Minister comes out and says, after this election, Labour will not be working with New Zealand First. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we go, just a quick comment on, on National this week. Uh, Paula Bennett and Ann Holly um, not standing again. How significant is that, do you think? Well, I, I suspect, um, I mean, both were um, part of the Bridges um, supporting group and part of that. It is significant because what it does do is, one, you lose a very high-profile Māori MP uh, who became Deputy Prime Minister and actually um, is a very strong performer, and Anne, who could have been, you know, the, mm. the next Speaker of the House. Um, so, so to me, that's... that. Also, what it does do is take away from nationals' claims that they are the strongest economic managers. Well, you've just had two experienced cabinet ministers go. Mm -hmm. So it's a big leveller to me. All right. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, Ifisa Collins and Fran O'Sullivan, we've had a lot of feedback on the Prime Minister's comments this morning. Noel Narayan posted, keep the borders closed. Rini tweeted, we don't. We instead work towards being self-sufficient in every way and we take care of those around us. We flourish in a return to what matters, care for others. Alex tweeted, the question is not when we open the border, it'll be what the necessary conditions are in New Zealand and in the partner country. Graham Farmer tweeted, governments don't grow the economy business do the tax doesn't magically appear from nowhere thank you for your comments up next president trump is already taking an america first position with any drugs that could help patients recover from coronavirus so what will happen when a vaccine is ready and how long will new zealand have to wait and how to tussle with the trump administration one of america's top white house correspondents is coming up shortly Thank you very much, John. Thank you very much. You will never make it. Go ahead. Hawke Mayanor, welcome back to Q&A. Finding a vaccine is, of course, a key in ending the COVID-19 pandemic, and there are billions of dollars being invested in finding that drug. Despite some early hopes, it still seems most scientists aren't predicting a breakthrough until next year at the very earliest. We're joined this morning by Associate Professor Helen Petousis-Harris from Auckland University, who is also the chair of the World Health Organization's Global Advisory Committee on Vaccine Safety. Kia ora. Kia ora. Can I just say how great it is to have you in that position at this time, <laughs> from, from a journalistic perspective. Are scientists certain we are going to have a vaccine? Scientists are never certain about anything, of course, which is really something annoying about them. But um, I think highly likely, um, I would, you know, maybe 95% sure that we're going to have something um, in the relatively near future.
that being said, there are vaccines and there are vaccines, aren't there? Because there are all sorts of different vaccines being um, developed at the moment and some are likely to be more effective than others. Correct. There's about eight different platforms. So even though there's sort of a couple of hundred now um, in some stage of development, there's about eight basic platforms. Right. If we are 95% likely going to have a vaccine, how long until it is approved for distribution? The timelines that you know we've been talking about for the last few months still stand at the moment, uh, whereby there might be a can candidate or, or a few candidates by the end of the year ready or, or registered for wider use. Right. Okay, so that doesn't mean it's landing in the GP's fridge at that time, um, but uh, you know in some populations it'll start to become um, deployed. Okay, mm. so so by the end of this year it might be approved. How long does it take until it is in the GP's fridge? The estimates there um, are, are sort of ranging over, over a period of next year, um, perhaps towards, to the, towards the end of next year. And it's, it sort of depends on, on all of these things going right, all the things that are happening that need mm. to occur uh, go right. Uh, and if that happens, then I think a lot is probably going to start happening next year. That's quite a delay. So, so yeah. if, it, if it, say, it was approved in November of, or December of this year, to be waiting almost a year potentially mm. for it to turn up in a GP's mm. fridge and, and for that vaccine to be available to New Zealand is, mm. a, is a significant delay. Yeah, you've got to make a lot of it though. And this is one of the big barriers. You, you, you get something that, that looks effective mm. um, and of course the, the performance of these vaccines will vary probably. So you get something that looks effective and, and you know, its safety is looking pretty good. Uh, you've got to make a lot before you can, you know, get it to to everybody who needs it. So, so there's a new strategy. You know, there's strategies that have been formed. Um, collectives, for example, the new Covax uh, platform, which New Zealand has which signed is up New Zealand, yeah, um, which is there to uh, try and allow equitable distribution and also kind of spread the risk among. Uh, a lot of us, because if you imagine if you were a company um, and you start making something and you don't even really know if it's going to work yet, you, you've got a huge risk there. So by spreading the risk and all investing in this uh, between us, we can we can have something secured. Can you talk to me a little bit more about, about the risk? What is the, the risk in trying to push through vaccines as quickly as we are in this instance? Well, say, um, you know, a vaccine that gets into human trials has a sort of a 15 to 20% chance of success. Right. So there's, there's going to be some successes, but a bunch of failures as well. And those that fail, um, you know, have cost a lot of money to mm. get to that stage. So you want to encourage the best candidates um, to come forward and to be viable, but also the the manufacturing of them and making sure that that, that product is available mm. to those who've put into that, like New Zealand, and also for those countries that will be unable to afford. We are sense. already seeing um, the, the Trump administration pursuing an American first policy. So they have secured the world supply of the antiviral drug remdesivir for mm. about three months. Is the demand for a vaccine going to follow a similar path? Is it going to go to the highest bidder first? That was the concern. And that's what we saw uh, during the swine flu pandemic. And, you know, just a few of the wealthiest countries pretty much bought up all the vaccine, leaving none for, for you know, low-income countries. So uh, we don't want that to happen again. So that's why we've got this strategy, um, the, for example, the COVAX strategy. Is it going to work without the Americans, though? Yeah. Really? Why not? <laughs> well, Why not? because I mean, could, just just like they have with Remdesivir, can, can't they just they can? You know, I mean, Donald Trump shows no interest in working with multilateral institutions at the moment. Mm. He's he's you know, staunchly. Um, America first, staunchly nationalistic. So, so why couldn't he say to a drug company, yeah, sure, you know, that all of these other countries are joining together, but America will pay three times what they'll pay for the drug? Well, he can and he has. Mm. <laughs> um, but not, not, but those who sign up for, say, for example, this collaboration mm. uh, won't be doing that. Right. Um, the agreement is... Um, Laid out, and that's on the drug company side as well. As well, yeah. Right. So, so the manufacturers can sign into this as well as the countries. What can New Zealand do to make sure we are as prepared as possible to distribute the vaccine once it does become available? Are we doing enough? No, I think that's a good question. Uh, yeah, it's great to, to get the vaccine and have it here, but we've got to be able to deploy it um, effectively and also safely. 
Uh, we've done this before with newer vaccines. Our men's B experience uh, some 15 years ago was an absolute gold star example of how to do it. So we, we've got a bit of work to do to prepare to be able to do that. Like, for example, we need to, to do something about our national electronic register um, in order to record all of these vaccines. So there's a lot of work to be done uh, and it probably needs to be happening now so that when we get something, we're ready to go. But it's not happening now. No, no, it's not happening now. I think, and, and we're not alone in that. You know, I think the European Union are making a lot of uh, good efforts to prepare for deployment of the vaccine. But I think most countries are probably so focused on actually inventing this thing that right. they haven't quite thought far enough ahead yet. So, so whose responsibility is this to make sure that we are as prepared as possible? I think that, you know, traditionally I think, you know, the Ministry of Health did a lot, lot, lot of work in that area, but it's something that I think we need to start talking about now and getting, getting into place. When should we reopen New Zealand's borders? When, when we can be confident that uh, whoever we're opening it to is in the same situation as we are, really. I mean, I can't see any other safe way of doing this. Does that mean that we essentially have to wait until either we have gold standard instant testing and results or a vaccine available to New Zealand's population? I mean, I think, I think, you know, I think it's more about controlling the global pandemic and whether that means we had a, a vaccine here or whether that had been controlled either through vaccine or other means mm. elsewhere. Uh, but it's really about looking at what's happening outside our borders. Mm. Um, and I mean, at the moment, though, uh, you know, for example, the US has... 40 or 50,000 new cases every single day, our prerequisites for forming a bubble with another country state that they have to have the virus under control, clearly not the case in the US, and they have to have contact tracing capacity. I mean, they're not even bothering in the US, because why would you with 50,000 cases a day? Does that mean that, for example, one of our biggest trading partners, we're just not going to be able to have any open borders with America until New Zealand's population is protected from the virus through a vaccine? Uh, yeah, I mean, that would be what... You know, I'm not entirely confident that just, just having a vaccine available here will be enough. Mm. I really think ultimately it's got to be a, a global... Uh, a global... Um, response. Response and control of the pandemic. Because if it's thriving in one place, it will mm. continue. Uh, you know, we're not going to have a vaccine that's 100% effective. But... You know, we, we're actually not going to know until we start um, either getting these things under control in other, in other countries, but also get a vaccine that is, is going to be useful. Mm. Uh, and maybe then we can start All right. moving in that direction. <laughs> Thank you for your time and <laughs> expertise. Associate Professor Helen Petusis-Harris. After the break on Q&A, ABC America's Chief White House Correspondent on Donald Trump's re-election chances and concerns for his own safety. I said to him, you know, when, when you use rhetoric like that, when you call us enemies of the people, you know, aren't you worried uh, that, some, that a supporter of yours might take your words to heart and act on it? Kia ora Four months from the US election, public health officials have warned that America might soon record 100,000 new cases of coronavirus a day. Several states have had to postpone their scheduled reopenings as the virus sweeps across the US, and polls show the president being hammered for his coronavirus response. Jonathan Carl is the chief White House correspondent for ABC News and the author of Front Row at the Trump Show. I asked him how the spread of the virus is hurting Donald Trump's re-election campaign. Well, uh, you can say this much. As we've had this surge in coronavirus cases, we have also seen a precipitous decline in his standing in the polls. Now, of course, this isn't the only thing that's been going on. Uh, we've had all of the social unrest uh, surrounding and in, in the wake of the death, the killing of George Floyd. Uh, so it's been a rather tumultuous time in the United States. Uh, but the president's uh, re-election prospects, uh, and now we're, all, we're four months out, we have a long ways to go. But right now, I think the, the consensus uh, across the board is that those re-election prospects are grim. Is it unreasonable to say that the virus is killing Trump's supporters? Well, it's a very interesting question. And, and, and to get what you pointed out before, so early on, uh, this virus hit uh, especially hard New York, uh, Washington State, 
California, uh, Michigan was hit. And now we're seeing it really take off in, uh, as you mentioned, Florida, Texas. I would, I would put Arizona on that list as well. And those that are most vulnerable, most vulnerable are older voters. And in the last election, uh, this, you know, Donald Trump won by and large because he had a huge margin of victory among voters over the age of 65. What's been interesting in the polls to watch now is, tr is the uh, Donald Trump's support among older voters has dropped precipitously. Uh, you've got to believe that at least part of that is they feel uncomfortable with how he has handled a pandemic that threatens them and threatens their livelihood. Uh, but yes, if you looked at the uh, 2016 exit polls and where the votes were, the votes for Donald Trump were largely among, um, certainly his largest margin of victory among older voters. And those are the voters, uh, th those, are, those are the people that are dying uh, in the largest numbers in the United States. And now they're there, this, this, we don't see the deaths rise yet, but certainly the new cases are largely throughout the South and the Sun Belt in, in states that voted for Donald Trump. Let's talk about the polls then. Donald Trump is well behind in the popular vote, and he's lagging in the polls in many of those swing states. But do the press corps trust polls? Well, you know, we obviously, after the experience in 2016, where uh, the, the expectation across the board, I would also say the expectation in Donald Trump's campaign headquarters, uh, was that he was going to lose. Uh, the polls showed him trailing uh, nationally. And also, there was less polling in the critical states, but, uh, but, but the polling that was there suggested he was going to lose in a lot of the battleground states. I would also tell you that the internal polling by the Republicans were doing themselves, I write about this in my book, uh, they briefed reporters the Friday before the election, the Republican National Committee, and they had spent millions and millions of dollars on a very sophisticated uh, method of looking at where they stood in each state. It was not just polling, it was door-to-door -door knocking on doors. It was, uh, you know, really getting in touch with almost in a literal way every voter. And they were pointing to Donald Trump losing and losing badly. So after that experience, of course, you don't want to look at the polls and say Donald Trump has no chance. But I will say this. The polls right now are a lot worse for Donald Trump than they were four years ago. So they were bad four years ago. He eked out a victory, losing the popular vote, but winning in enough critical states to, to get elected. Uh, but right now, I mean, we, we've had two recent polls. One, uh, a New York Times poll that showed him down 14 points to Joe Biden, uh, and one uh, that was Fox News did that showed him down 12 points. Now, those are national uh, polls, you know, as you know, in America, we have we, we you get elected president by winning various states in the Electoral College. But I mean, you, you don't lose by a margin anywhere near like that in terms of the popular vote and get elected president or get reelected president. What's the sense you get on the ground at the White House? Is Team Trump worried? Uh, they're, they're, they're very concerned, and it's uh, not just his uh, political advisors here or at his campaign. Uh, it's his outside uh, political advisors. It's, it's his allies, Republican allies on Capitol Hill. Uh, there is real concern that he is digging himself a big hole. He's been dealt, you know, very tough hand in 2020. I mean, to have this pandemic hit uh, and, and hit the economy the way it has. That was his shining achievement, was the, uh, was the economy. And now that is gone, although we have seen a rebound to a degree. Uh, it's still, you know, uh, we have 11 percent unemployment rate uh, in the United States. That is historically sky high. Uh, it's, it's hitting him bad. But his, his, some of his key advisors, both inside and outside, don't think he's quite gotten the message. Uh, he's um, had a very divisive, divisive rhetoric that has alienated, you know, any anybody who is remotely undecided, and there aren't many undecided voters in the United States right now. Uh, the, the, the rhetoric that he has been using has has alienated them. Fast forward four months. What happens if Donald Trump loses the election? Does he leave the White House? Well, that's a question that gets asked a lot around here. Would he refuse to accept the results? Would he refuse uh, to, to give up power? Look, I, I've known Donald Trump for, uh, I guess it's now 26 years. Uh, I think I've got a pretty good sense of, of the guy. I, I, I don't think that he's going to be contested. I mean, he, I'm sure he'll complain about irregularities. He'll say there was voter fraud. But at the end of the day, he's not going to try to uh, maintain power uh, if he, in fact, loses. That's at least what I think. Mm. I actually asked this question of one of his top uh, former uh, officials here at the White House, uh, who told me, 
uh, basically uh, a trust me if he loses there are people here who will go and quietly escort him off grounds if he refuses to go and then this this advisor said he could chain himself to the resolute that's that big desk in the oval office he could chain himself to the resolute and people will quietly go and cut the chain and escort him out right. <laughs> we've we've been doing transitions of power in this country you know, since uh, um, since 17, um, uh, I, I guess since 1790. So we, we've we, we've been able to uh, to do this uh, in the past, and, and I, I suspect we'll be fine. That being said, he's uh, unlike many previous <laughs> U.S. presidents. <laughs> he's, he's, he's unlike any other U.S. <laughs> president. Yes. Let, let me ask about the, the Democrats. Is is um, the agreed upon wisdom at the moment that it's in Joe Biden's interests to lay as low as possible until about November the 1st? <laughs> uh, yes, and he's actually been doing that now. The pandemic has given him a ready excuse to do that. But if this election is a referendum on Donald Trump, the consensus is Joe Biden wins. So Biden needs to make sure he doesn't do anything egregious that would, uh, that would give people reason to make this into more of a, a choice election and, and give them reasons to doubt uh, Biden. But, you know, Biden held a press conference this week. It was the first time the, the members of the press have had a chance to ask him questions in, I don't know, it was almost three months. He actually did, he did you know, he did pretty well. Uh, he seemed a little rusty. Uh, he's going to have debates, assuming the debates happen, and I, I assume they will in the fall with Donald Trump. He needs to be in, 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 in fighting shape. The president delights in a combative relationship with the press, and you yourself have been involved in a couple of pretty high-profile stouches. Do you ever worry for your safety? Uh, it's certainly a thought that, that, that's entered my mind, especially when I'm uh, out at a, at a Trump event and, and, you know, Donald Trump is on the stage and he's talking about how horrible the uh, the people are back there in the press area and he he calls us names says we're, we're horrible despicable people that we're a threat to the country uh, that we're enemies of the people this is really incendiary rhetoric uh, and, and it gets quite a reaction from the crowd they taunt and scream towards the press um, it can get it can get unsettling and I, I once I asked him I, I wrote about this uh, in my book I had a, um, a meeting with him in the Oval Office last fall and I brought this up to him. It was shortly after the mass shootings we had here in the United States at, in El Paso, Texas, and in Dayton, Ohio. And I said to him, you know, when, when you use rhetoric like that, when you call us enemies of the people, you know, aren't you worried uh, that, some, that a supporter of yours might take your words to heart and act on it? And his answer was really unsettling. It was like he didn't understand, even just after these mass shootings, he didn't understand what I was saying. He said, well, I hope they take my words to heart because I really believe the fake news is the enemy of the people. It's like he just, he didn't even understand the concept. So, so it is something you think about um, because uh, if you take the president literally, I mean, when, 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 he, when he says that about the press, you could certainly see somebody taking a pot shot. That is Jonathan Carl, ABC News, America's chief White House correspondent. All right, it's time for this week's one thing. And the Fakaro, the idea this week, comes courtesy of Daniel Anderson, who's the owner of the Ranch Bar and Grill in Tiano. Hi, I'm Daniel Anderson. If there's one thing I could change, would be for New Zealanders to come and have a look at our backyard. Two weeks ago, I circumnavigated Lake Tianao and um, I was overwhelmed with what I'd seen. Even in my own backyard, gateway to Milford Sound, Doubtful Sound, and also Lake Tianao, Manapuri. This place is amazing. So Kiwis, come and have a look at our backyard. Help our economy. Comedian Tom Sainsbury is going to be with us next Sunday morning ahead of his brand new TVNZ On Demand comedy, Sex Torsion. It's a political satire, familiar territory for Tom, who of course made his name with his Snapchat impersonations of MPs, such as Paula Bennett. Anyway, bye for now. Um, and I don't want anyone to worry about old Paula Bennett because I'm going to come back like a phoenix from the ashes. Just you watch. In the words of the wonderful Gloria Gaynor, I will survive. He 
Yes, Paula Bennett is finishing up and so are we. Kua mutu, that is Q&A for this week. Thank you for watching and nā mihi kia koto i o koto pānui. Thank you for your contributions and messages. Thanks to the Q&A team. Marae is up next. Hey te wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.